0: Here's the scene. You're an oncology, PGY2 pharmacy resident on rounds. The attending looks at you with the question, where did the dose of rituximab come from? As a PGY2 resident who maybe thinks he knows more than he actually does, says, oh, from well-designed phase one studies that determined that was the maximum tolerated dose. He looks at me and says, no. It was all about how much drug they have left. I'm like, hmm, okay, so I go and look into this. <clears throat> Can't find any literature to support that. And so the legend goes on that the dose of Rituximab was just found by luck. We'll get into it. Welcome to Farm. I'm your host, John Bazar. Coming to you from the sponsor of Farm, the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy here at East Tennessee State University. And today, we're going to talk about rituximab, and we're going to dig into that and see if the the legend of the rituximab dose is myth or reality. But first, let's talk about rituximab. So, uh, this is a chimeric monoclonal antibody, and the murine antibody was CB8. Therefore, the first uh, name you'll see in the literature for TuxMab is IDEC, I-D-E-C, slash C, as in chimeric C2B8, um, and this was IDEC Pharmaceuticals. <clears throat> That's where the IDEC comes from. And the first report you'll find uh, in the literature is a phase one study in blood by 1994 by Maloney that looked at uh, 15 patients with low-grade B-cell lymphoma, and they got the following doses: 10 milligrams per meter squared times three doses, 50 milligrams per meter squared. uh, I'm sorry, three patients. So 10 milligrams per meter squared, three patients, single dose, then the higher dose of 50 milligrams per meter squared, then 100, then 250, and 500. Each of those cohorts got uh, three patients accrued. So it is a single dose, low grade, so mostly follicular. Six of 15 patients responded, um, and only three of those patients In that first study in humans, only three of those patients actually received more than the current dose of 375 milligrams per meter squared. And in this study, there was no dose-limiting toxicity found, all the way up to 500 milligrams per meter squared. Now, this phase one study illustrates one of the downsides from a patient in enrolling in a phase one clinical trial is that in this case, although six of 15 responded, 12 of the 15 patients actually were underdosed by today's standards. And that's always a risk in a in enrolling a patient in a phase one clinical trial is the patient will be underdosed, since the goal of the phase one study is to find the dose for a phase two study. In 1997, in the journal of Clinical Oncology, Maloney again publishes a a report of 20 patients, 15 with low grade B-cell lymphomas, five with high. Uh, Three patients got 125 milligrams per meter squared. Seven got 250 milligrams per meter squared. And then we see that 10 patients uh, got 375 milligrams per meter squared uh, for four weekly doses. Hmm, well that 375 milligrams per meter squared, which is the dose used today, that didn't come from the earlier phase one study. So where did this come from? Well, uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna try and find this. So um, the ASCO cancer progress timeline, which I kind of use for, uh, as a guide of, of what to do for the kind of landmark in oncology pharmacy articles, um, there is, uh they cite this paper from JCO in 1998 by uh, McLaughlin and Gorilla-Lopez. And McLaughlin was from MD Anderson Cancer Center. Gorilla-Lopez is from uh, IDEC Pharmaceuticals. Uh, and they looked at 166 patients with low-grade non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, so mostly follicular. And they got 375 milligrams per meter squared times four weekly doses. And that is the study that led to the approval of rituximab in the United States on November 26th. 1997, just after Thanksgiving. So it was initially approved for low-grade B-cell lymphomas, uh, and in the article they cite that this 375 came from a previous study, and they cite this JCO paper from 1997, and they got 375 from there. But that didn't come from the first phase one study. Well, Gorilla Lopez, who was, an empl- who was an employee of IDEC Pharmaceuticals, writes in seminars in oncology in uh, in the year 2000, uh, rituximab an insider's historical perspective. I'm gonna read here what he says. Uh, A bit of information not widely known relates to the rationale for choosing the recommended dose and schedule of administration, 375 milligrams per meter squared per week times four doses. This formal and scientific decision-making process, as well as a more pragmatic pragmatic considerations are shown in Table 3. So the scientific rationale are pharmacokinetic data, pharmacodynamic effects, Uh, But then there are also these practical considerations. And that is that the highest dose they had shown that was safe was 500 milligrams per meter squared. They wanted to give each patient four doses. They wanted to escalate. They wanted to accrue 30 patients for that phase two study. And they had 100 grams of drug available. So 375 milligrams per meter squared times, say, a body service AF2. That's 750 milligrams times four doses, that's three grams, times 30 patients, that's 90 grams. So the legend ended up being reality and that the 375 milligram dose of rituximab that we use, 375 milligrams per meter squared, that dose that we use for everybody, mostly everybody, there are some regimens where they get a 500 milligram dose per meter squared. It just came from the fact that this drug company only had a hundred grams available at the time they were designing their phase 2 study and it was all based on how can we use the drug that we have remaining on the shelf. Uh, and that's going to be important um, and, and we'll revisit this later, uh, the fact that we do not know the optimal dose of rituximab and we're going to come back to that. Um, so CD20, uh, that is the target of rituximab. we talk talking about the mechanism of action and CD20 is expressed almost solely on B cells. Uh, so it's not an antigen that's expressed on a lot of other cells it's almost all on b cells and the b cells start to express cd20 in the pre-b stage uh, early in maturation all the way up until uh, they reach maturity uh, the role of cd20 um not entirely sure it's not uh entirely known uh, so riley and slick slikowski writing in 2000 also in seminars on oncology have a paper called cd20 A gene in search of a function. Uh, So we don't exactly know what CD20 does, but it's thought to be involved in B cell activation, uh, regulation of cell cycle initiation and growth, uh, as well as calcium influx and efflux. So rituximab binds to CD20 and then it either uh, results in B cell death by complement dependent cell cytotoxicity or antibody dependent cellular cytotoxicity both of which result in a decrease in the number of circulating CD20 cells. So those are going to be the B cells, both the healthy B cells, as well as the malignant B cells, uh, since that's where we use it. Now, because you're causing complement-dependent or antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity, uh, these cells are dying and releasing their, their contents. And since these are lymphocytes, what are in lymphocytes? Well, the cytokines, the the messengers of the immune system. So those cytokine releases cause infusion reactions. uh, And that is the most common toxicity that we worry about with rituximab. Um, It is a monoclonal antibody. It is a chimeric monoclonal antibody. So you could also have a hypersensitivity reaction where you have, uh, say, an IgE antibody that's already preformed against that mouse portion of rituximab. Fortunately, those hypersensitivity and anaphylactic reactions are not very common with rituximab, uh, unlike, say, uh, they're a lot more common with cetuximab in the southeast. But the infusion reactions we see with rituximab are related to cytokine release, and that is the reason that infusion reactions with, cet- with rituximab are much more common with the first dose, and they're more likely and more severe if patients have a higher circulating absolute lymphocyte count because it's related to tumor burden. The more active and the more cells there are to to lyse and to die with rituximab, the more cytokine is released and the more infusion reactions that you get. Um, and it doesn't just have to be the first dose of rituximab, so I want to think about patients with chronic lymphocytic leukemia for a second who get treated say four or five years ago with FCR or some rituximab containing chemo regimen, have a great response, their counts come back to normal, they, they're, they're in remission for some years, their disease comes back you go back to another rituxmab-based chemo regimen, even though it's not their first dose of rituxmab, because their leukemia is back and they're going to have a high circulating lymphocyte count, you're going to have uh, a concern for infusion reactions with that first dose. So, how do we manage those infusion reactions? Well, first and foremost, uh, we're going to premedicate with uh, acetaminophen and uh, an H1 receptor antagonist like diphenhydramine. And then we're going to begin the infusion slowly. And usually this is going to be, uh, based on the package insert, 50 milligrams an hour. Now, pharmacists, it makes it easy if you uh, prepare this as a one-to-one dilution so everyone can just track volume infused. So if it's a oh, one milligram per one mil solution, 50 milligrams an hour is going to be 50 mils an hour. Uh, and then every 30 minutes, you increase the infusion by 50 milligrams an hour uh, up to a maximum infusion rate of 400 milligrams an hour. Uh, as long as there are no reactions. If a patient starts to have an infusion reaction, and usually that could be fever, chills, rigors, either an increase or decrease in blood pressure, then you want to decrease the infusion rate uh, and just keep it at that lower infusion rate. So if somebody is getting uh, rituximab at 150 milligrams an hour, they have an infusion reaction, so you bump it back down to 100 milligrams an hour uh, and just let it ride at that infusion rate for the rest of the dose. Uh, Now, Let's say a patient has no problems with infusion reactions with their first cycle. With the next cycle, you can start at 100 milligrams per hour and increase uh, from there every 30 minutes by 100 milligrams an hour, so a faster uh, titration for subsequent doses for those patients who don't have infusion reactions. And then there's also an accelerated infusion that's in the package insert over 90 minutes, but there are certain criteria that patients need to meet. So I'd refer you to the U.S. package insert for that. And a lot of other institutions are publishing uh, their own... Uh, infusion reaction, uh, not infusion reaction protocols, but their own rapid infusion for rituximab. Uh, Some other notable warnings for rituximab is uh, because this does deplete b-cells and b-cells are an important part of our immune system you can get some some widespread long-standing immunosuppression that can result in progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy. Uh, At least it's my perception that's more common in patients receiving rituximab for autoimmune disorders because they tend to get rituximab for a lot longer as opposed to oncology we tend to give it for a finite number of cycles say six cycles uh, you can see hepatitis b virus reactivation uh, and this is one thing that uh, is something i always look for for any rituximab uh, order uh, is making sure that we have those hepatitis viral serologies ordered before the dose is given uh, if they do have a history of hepatitis b uh, you can uh, suppress and prevent reactivation within entecavir. Uh, There's some data for that. There's also some data for some other um, antivirals as well. And then especially in uh, the rheumatoid patients, you can see a decrease in immunization effectiveness. There's data in the PI about it decreasing the effectiveness of pneumococcal vaccines and I know that I read a study at some point uh, in RA patients about rituximab basically rendering the influenza virus uh, vaccine uh, almost completely ineffective. So <clears throat> where do we use oncology? I'm just going to talk about the, uh, where do we use rituximab? And I'm just going to talk about the oncologic indications. I'm not going to talk about rheumatoid arthritis or lupus. This isn't, you know, rumopharm. This is oncopharm. So any, any malignancy that expresses CD20, and those are going to be B-cell malignancies. So that's going to be ALL. You know, maybe half of ALLs are going to express CD20, um, the, the B-ALLs. Um, Non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, both the indolent lymphomas like follicular, the aggressive non-Hodgkin's lymphomas like diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, and the very aggressive uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphomas uh, like Burkitt's lymphoma. Uh, there's also a, a type of Hodgkin's lymphoma called lymphocyte predominant, where B cells are also B lymphocytes. So rituximab has a role there as well. Uh, CLL, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, uh, as well as um, you know any kind of lymphoproliferative disorder like Um, post-transplant lymphoproliferative disease. So to illustrate how effective this is for some of these malignancies, I just want to point out one study. Um, This is uh, from Foyger et al. uh, in JCO in 2005, and and maybe the more landmark study is Bernard Coiffure's study in New England Real Medicine from O2. But I like this study because I had it readily on hand and I think it it illustrates something. So this is diffuse large B-cell lymphoma patients. Being treated for CHOP, which was the standard of care, versus RCHOP, which is the current standard of care. And the five year overall survival with CHOP was forty-five percent, fifty-eight percent for our CHOP. So a thirteen percent absolute benefit of this. That equates to a number needed to treat of eight. So really a number needed to cure of eight. So we have to put uh, eight, eight CHOP patients adding rituximab to save one extra life. And that's a pretty big benefit. And this, uh, shortly after this study came out in 2006 is when the FDA approved rituximab with CHOP for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma patient. Um, now the dose used here was 375 milligrams per meter squared. And that's just because, you know, like so many things in medicine, why did we use that dose? Well, that's the dose we've always used. So going back to uh, the legend I kind of teased the episode with here, that we don't know the, the appropriate dose or the best dose of rituximab. So I, I want to point out, and I'll tweet this out, this is one of these articles, and these come out every now and then, and I'm like, why are people not talking about this more often? So this is in Blood in 2014 by Michael, um, and it's a very German name, uh, Frunschu? I guess is how you say it. Uh, The title here is Suboptimal Dosing of Rituximab in Male and Female Patients with Diffuse RGB Cell Lymphoma. I'll just read from the abstract that greater benefit for elderly females was associated with slower rituximab clearance and hence higher serum levels and longer exposure times attributable to an age-dependent decrease in rituximab clearance in females but not males. Which begs the question... Do elderly males need a higher dose? Do all patients need a higher dose of rituximab? Especially if 500 milligrams per meter squared um, was studied in phase one studies, wasn't shown to have dose-limiting toxicity, is that better than 375? Seems to be a question we should ask. Rituximab is a very expensive drug, of course, Uh, so I'm not suggesting anybody go out and and give higher doses just because of this silly podcast, but it's something that I think should be studied, and here's why. I'll use this analogy. Uh, like when my grandparents got a really nice expensive computer and all they used it for was Solitaire, not, not a really great use of you know, something that's that expensive. So if Rituximab is so great, the number you need to treat is 8 in diffuse b cell lymphoma, why are we not doing all we can to get as much benefit as possible from Rituximab? And yes, there are some other CD20 monoclonal antibodies, obinutuzumab, ofatumumab, that, that maybe have more you know cellular cytotoxicity, cytotoxicity activity, um, but maybe rituximab is underdosed as well. So again, the number needed to treat here for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma is eight. Go look at the heart protection study, simvastatin versus placebo to prevent cardiovascular events. The number needed to treat for mortality in that study was 56. The number you to treat to prevent any vascular event was 19. Still a bit higher than a number needed treatment so rituximab is hugely important for these non-hodgkin's lymphoma patients uh, and really important for cure which is why if they have infusion reactions you don't just stop the infusion and give up you decrease the dose even we've had patients that we have to admit them to the hospital and they've got to get their rituximab over 25 milligrams an hour and it takes all day but you you still do it because the benefit of rituximab is so great it doesn't have the overlapping um, myelosuppression Peripheral neuropathy that you see with the other drugs in our chopper, cardiotoxicity. So it's a great add-on drug. So if you're listening to this and you're you're a non-onco farmer, you can keep your statins. I'll take rituximab. As always, thanks for listening. Find us uh, on iTunes at Onco Farm, um, and. and um, Rate, review us, give us us five stars. Let us know what you like about the podcast, what you'd like to hear more about. Uh, You can find me on Twitter at PharmDitinib, and you can find the podcast at OncoFarmPod. And as always, I hope to see you all a little further down the road.